in God's Word. Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. This week I have been positively ecstatic. I love the Psalms, but boy, Revelation has been food for my soul of late. Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no delay any longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you have designed for us so that we might see you as you have shown yourself to be and our lives transformed and transfixed upon the one who stands upon the earth, who stands upon the sea, who rides upon the wind, who is our great prophet, priest, and king. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. This morning, as we come again to this blessed book, Revelation chapter 10, there is a bit of an interlude in chapter 10 as we see what is happening behind the scenes. We'll talk more of that in a moment, but this is the second time that this has happened in the book of Revelation already, in chapter 6 and 7, and here in chapter 10, prior to the opening of the seventh scroll, and the sounding of that final declaration of God's will on earth. Now, as we return back to this book, perhaps it would do you some good to go back a couple chapters, or maybe read up until this point. Uh, It's certainly worth it. As we see this mighty angel coming, we see Christ himself uttering those things, not only a promise, a solemn oath, but as he exercises his decrees, it is right for us who see the the things of earth, all that is physical, all that our eyes take in, the rods and the cones, the colors and the light, and to look beyond what we see with our eyes, our natural sight. The way things are here described in Revelation chapter 10. Two points that I want to make this morning as we come back to the book of Revelation and see Christ's rule and reign in heaven and on earth. The first, the mighty angel. We see this in verses 1 through 4. The mighty angel. And then second, 
the finishing of the mystery in verses 5, 6, and 7. The finishing of the mystery. Let's look at this first point, the mighty angel. I said already that this represents a bit of an interlude, a reprieve. As we saw in Revelation chapter 6 through 7, this respite from the war of heaven and earth, God's judgment being decreed and about to be poured out against the city of Jerusalem, namely the temple. In his commentary, Douglas Kelly writes, So in this interlude, we are taken behind the scenes and off the battlefield for a while, where we may be still and contemplate what is causing these things to work out the way they do. Now you live among a people. You live among a people who are, everyone around you, seeking to explain why things are the way they are. The foundational principle that must inform that question, why are things the way they are, must be the doctrine of a God who is, but who not only is, but is triune in his eternal existence, who made all things by the word of his power, and now rules in his redemptive purposes to bring all things under his authority. That is our guiding foundational principle. And so revelation flies in the face of a secular, pagan worldview. Both of those are pagan. One is a bit more sophisticated and scientific, but both exercise the removal of Christ from the throne and place man and his devices and desires upon the throne. So whether you believe that earth came to be riding on the back of a cosmic turtle, like many do, in the Eastern religions, or you believe that earth came to be through a puddle of ooze getting struck by lightning, which sounds a lot like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or if you believe in the, the, uh, the sperma, permaspermum theory where this rocket, this alien rocket was launched from another planet and it crash-landed into earth, and that's how we came to be, you listen to all those things and you go, okay, those sound a little silly, right? Well, I would admit, and I think you ought to admit, that this doctrine of God as creator who spoke all things in the space of six days and rested on the seventh day, six literal 24-hour days, sounds strange in the ears of a natural man. Because natural men wishes to do what? To remove the presence of God, who is creator and judge, off of the throne of heaven and earth. Because if he's there, you and I are accountable to him. But Revelation gives us an unblushing, clear, however symbolic, and at times mysterious view of this one who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth. And so what Kelly, in his commentary, and it's, it's a wonderful commentary. If you've not yet bought a commentary on the book of Revelation, I would recommend that one. It's not an, ex, or an exegetical commentary. It's more of a pastoral expository commentary. It's a wonderful resource. And in it, he wants us to understand, and rightly so, John, and Douglas Kelly is simply moving through the, the book. What John wants us to see is the, the sort of clockwork that God wants us to see behind the events of human history. Why was the temple destroyed? 
Was it merely the, the, the aggressions and machinations of a great and wicked nation that being Rome? Or was it part of the purposes of God and the fulfillment of God to unite all things under Christ so that the temple would not stand as a dividing line between Jew and Gentile? And if you know your Bible, you understand that Christ himself, while on earth, came proclaiming the destruction of the temple, not only in his own body and the resurrection of that temple in his own body, but in John chapter 4, there would come a time where meeting on the mount in Jerusalem in the temple was not necessary to commune with Almighty God, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we have a rest from the sixth trumpet to the seventh trumpet. I think I said seal earlier. But this interlude reveals not only what is happening, but in the first, we saw the prayers of the martyrs. The prayers of the martyrs gathered around the throne as they were, in essence, consulting with Christ as to how long it would be. Now, they would not be, Christ would not tell them. He simply said, wait, wait, it's coming, the time is soon. Now, the martyrs have not been waiting for thousands of years. That which they were praying for has already happened for us. In the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, Christ answered their pleadings, their prayers, to bring wrath and judgment against those who rejected Christ as the Messiah. And what we see in that interlude, and then in this one, in the mighty decrees of God and in his word, concealed, part of it is concealed, and part of it is revealed, is that through the word of Christ and through the prayers of the saints, the kingdom of God is manifested on earth. That those two things are recorded as the things, the occasions, the actions that bring kingdom transformation and expansion on earth. Your prayers and Christ's words Now, in these days of action, in these days of being blind to the spiritual realm, the things that are unseen, prayer and the prayer meeting has lost its luster. Why? Because if you can get things for yourself, you don't have to ask for them. And oftentimes in the kingdom, as it relates to the mission of the church, we think fleshly, we think superficially, we think humanistically about all of these things. And that we can get them for ourselves, but where do the resources come from that we use to get those things in the first place? From God's own hand. Children, the amount of prayers that are prayed over you by your parents so that you will not grow up to be a worthless good-for-nothing is immense. When your mother pleads, Lord, what is wrong with my son? Why won't he listen? <laughs> or fathers or daughters, when your fathers pray, Lord, bring her a good husband. All of these things are for what purpose? That God might do as we ask. 
We plead with him. And we plead with him not because we are sort of inwardly journaling our secret thoughts. We are bringing our cares, our petitions, our intercessions before the throne so that God might act. Your prayers are powerful in their working. Because they are brought before one whose speech makes things happen. And that is the one whom we see here. In verse 1, we see this mighty angel who comes down from heaven. He is clothed with a cloud. There is a rainbow above his head as a crown. His face shines as the sun and his feet are burning. This is the Messiah. This is not a created messenger. This is the second person of the Godhead, none other than the Son of God himself. In fact, in, Isaiah, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26, and above the firmament over the heads was the likeness of a throne. This is verse 26 of Ezekiel 1. In appearance like a sapphire stone, on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around it and within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now granted... John does not bow down and worship here. But this description coalesces with what we read in Ezekiel 1 and in Daniel, that this angel, this messenger, is unique. He is unique not only in the description that we find also earlier in the book of Revelation, with the crown like a rainbow, with feet like burning fire, but he has in his hand the book. Now, some commentators say the reason why the book is little is because the book has already been read from. There are not many pages left. In fact, it's small enough that John can eat it, strangely enough. What is the book? The book is the record of the divine decrees related to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ on earth. Now, we'll look at John's strange diet next week. And why it's sweet to the taste but sour in the stomach. But for now what we need to understand is the one who has one foot on earth, one foot in the sea. Whose face is like the sun. Who wears a rainbow crown. uh, Who is clothed in a cloud. All of this is symbolic language for the mighty God the Lord. And he is a lion who roars. In fact, in Genesis 49, if you want to turn there, you can go to Genesis 49. And in Genesis 49, we read of the one who is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And what will come from that line of the tribe of Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. 
Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Surely of the tribe, this prophecy by Jacob, Israel over his sons is told, but here it of course pertains to the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so when he speaks, it is like a lion's roar. It is like the roaring of many thunders here. Seven thunders. Psalm 29, we sing this a lot. And you may wonder, why are we singing about deers twisting in labor? Kids, do you remember this psalm? Because it's the voice of God that rules over everything. And when Christ speaks, things happen. We owe our existence, the governance of all things. Christ rules in creation and in providence. Psalm 29, verse 3, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. This is not just an angel. This is Christ. He is the mighty God, the Lord. And his right foot is on the sea, his left foot is in the land. He cries out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cries out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, this is verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Now, here is also another helpful principle that we find in Scripture. Not only is Christ the Lord and creator of all things, and his lordship that is founded covers the earth, but there are things that he has said that we are to know, and there are things that he has said which we will never know. And this language of sealing up is not unique. We saw it in Daniel chapter 8. And in Daniel chapter 8, almost all that Daniel saw in the visions, he was told by God to seal. And that seal was opened in large part in the book of Revelation. This seal, think of it like a letter. The envelope closes over the letter and there is that seal stamped. It is sealed awaiting the death and resurrection of the Messiah. So Daniel could not open it. Those things were not open to us to know until Christ was revealed. And now in the book of Revelation, Christ takes the throne. It has been unsealed. And John writes those things for us. Except there is some that we are not to know. And so what we learn even here are there things that the apostles and the prophets knew that you and I will never know. There are things that God has said and has revealed in creation and in providence and in his word that you and I will never know. Things that Christ has planned. Things that we are to take if we look at revelation that remain for us to discover later. And so it is not right when you look at the book of Revelation to say that everything here has already taken place, what we would often call a full preterist view. But there are some things 
that Christ has not yet revealed in the providence of God that are for later. Christ holds some of those things back. It does not mean that they are not known. It does not mean that they are not decreed. They are not given to us. And so our confidence is not in knowing all things. Our confidence is in knowing the one who knows all things. And that he is the good and mighty God. This is what we learn of the mighty angel. This is the one who doesn't stand behind the scenes and does not interact, but it is because of what he does behind the scenes that things are the way they are. There are many things in store for the saints, things that we do not know that have already been written. They were written before the foundations of the world were laid. In the mind of God, in the counsel of his secret will, there are things sealed up, verse 4, which are not to be known. Let's move to the second point. The finishing of the mystery. There are some things that are to be known. Just as there are things that are still sealed up that John was about to write, but then he was told by Christ not to write them. Verse 5, the angel, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John saw standing on the sea and on the land, then raised his hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever. This is the only kind of swearing you ought to do. In the name of God, we do this at weddings, right? We covenant ourselves. We do this when folks join churches. There are righteous oaths and vows. This oath, this vow that Christ makes to the Father, to the one who lives forever and ever, verse 5, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the thing, I'm sorry, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no delay. Christ is saying to the Father, I am about to do something. And when Christ swears to the Father and we hear that, what are we to think? When you hear a man and a woman swearing vows and oaths to one another and you are there as witnesses, what are you expecting? That they keep those oaths and vows. In fact, it used to be that the wedding party was there so that they can hear. And so if they see the groom or the bride acting up, they can say, remember, we were there. We had to buy that dress and rent that tux. We were there, and we remember what you said. Keep your vow. And the reason that we make vows is not just for the sake of inward commitment, but outward external oaths and vows are a testimony of something. They are a proclamation of something. In the case of a couple in love who wishes to be married, what they're saying to the world is, we're together. We're a unit. We are an item. We are one flesh. When Christ speaks openly with his mouth before the Father so that all of heaven and earth can hear, we are to take him at his word and believe what he says. And that everything he says is true as he has said it. He keeps his oaths and vows perfectly. 
And so the details of those vows are very important. And what does he say? That there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, and he declared to his servants the prophets. Now, what he says is related to where he is standing. And where he is standing is related to the work of his redeeming power to unite to himself the whole earth. So when you hear... I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more. Is that meant to be taken literally? Or I would swim the furthest ocean to get to you, my love. I'm sure someone's written that in a poem or in a song. Are they saying I would literally? No, you can't swim the Atlantic to get to your beloved. You would die somewhere three miles offshore of Virginia, probably. (laughs) You wouldn't get very far, or you'd be eaten, (laughs) It's a what? It's symbolic of the depth, the extent, the passion, the intensity of your love. And in the same way, when we look at the book of Revelation, we are to take these things seriously, but symbolically. And when we see Christ with his right foot in the sea and his left foot in the land, we see him as the one who stands upon the earth as his rightful, as its rightful king. And the reason that he's standing in both is language that is symbolic of what we find even in the epistles when Paul speaks of the unity that Christ will bring between Jew and Gentile. This mystery of God. This mystery of God. What do we read? Who created heaven and the things, this is verse 5, going back just a little bit, and the things that are in it, the earth and things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer But in the days of the sounding of the seventh seal, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus Christ. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. What is that union? It is the tearing down, later in the book of Ephesians, of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That in Christ, as it relates to his heavenly kingdom, there is no distinction between the sea and the earth. It is all his kingdom. And so many would say that the sea represents the Gentile nations and the earth represents the Jewish nation. And though there are outward distinctives, there are national distinctives, and those distinctives are real and fine and good, In Christ, as it pertains to the heavenly kingdom, there is no distinction. He has brought them together. Wherever Christ's feet land, he brings under his lordship. Like the time you buy the house and you sign the closing documents and you step in 
to the door for the first time and you just stand there and you survey it and go, boy, we have a lot of work to do. Or, I can't believe it. It's my castle. The master of the domain. When we first bought our house, we bought a fire pit. We took it out on the patio and we roasted marshmallows. You can't burn a fire on someone else's patio. Maybe if you get permission. But it was ours. And I remember just walking through the yard thinking, wow, how did I get here? It's mine. Well, so long as I pay my mortgage, it's mine. Or the relief when you finally do pay that last mortgage payment and you walk out of the backyard and, ah. He possesses it all. The one who stands on the earth and the sea, the one who speaks. And there are some things that we are not to know, but it does not take away from his, his kingship, his power, his glory. But then there are things that have been opened up to us. And what is revealed to our eyes and to our ears is that Christ is the king of heaven and earth. He is the king of Jew and Gentile. And all that was once concealed has now, in Christ, been made manifest to us. The one who stands is the one of whom Job confesses in Job 19. Oh, that my words were written. Isn't that ironic? Oh, that my, oh, they're written, Job. Oh, that they were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. What a hope. What a vision. If you are to navigate through life faithfully, this is the one whom you must see. He is the one who stands on the earth. He is the one who sounds with the voice like thunder. He is the one whose eyes burn and feet are fire, whose face is like the sun, who wears this glorious crown of jewels like a rainbow. And the mystery that he reveals, that we do know that he declared to the prophets and now through John and the apostles is that through Christ we can be reconciled. That is why we are here today. Is because Christ has one of his feet in the ocean, in the sea. And we have been brought under his lordship, under his kingship. And what we are even now being prepared to do is, well, what we should be doing already, is going out into the nations and proclaiming to them, this is the one who governs all things. And so as we again turn to the book of Revelation, may we have an elevated understanding, a biblical, exalted perspective of why things are the way they are. Let's pray.